0: Hello and welcome to another episode of a wee bit of everything with your hosts Lewis Cleland and Clark Burrow On the podcast where we interview athletes, teachers and occasionally share the odd story or two from our own experiences. This week we are absolutely delighted to welcome another very
1: special guest onto the show. This week a wee bit of everything are delighted to welcome Dr Andy DL onto the show. Andy is a Consultant in Bilateral Integration and also a Neurodevelopment Practitioner who helps infants, children and young adults to achieve their very best every day. Andy is renowned for his expert knowledge in using the BMT pedagogy and he will explain the hows and why behind this model today. We are both really looking forward to this one, therefore I think it's about time to get Andy onto the show. Right, Andy, welcome to a wee bit of everything. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And yourselves, I hope you're well. Yeah, we're all good. All good we're end. Making the most of our last couple of weeks off, I think. That's the plan <laughs> going forward from now. Nice. Thanks a lot, thanks a lot for joining us today and uh, sharing your experience of the BMT approach to teaching PE. Yeah,
2: it's so, a joy to be here.
1: Great. So diving right into it then, can you tell us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date?
2: Yeah, um, I'm going to make the short version for you because there is a longer version. Um, obviously, graduated as a teacher of physical education and stuff like that. Uh, spent a bit of time in the States. Uh, spent five years teaching at University of Glasgow. Um, after that, then worked in private clinical practice with a woman called Sheila Dobie um, from 1998 until 2002 and stuff like this, Uh, sorry, 2005. uh, She then retired, Uh, I took over that with a a kind of business partner. Um, And that's what I've been working doing for however long it's been now, a long time now to be fair. But um, that's my career, Um, educationally wise, uh, obviously graduated from PE college. um, Then did a a course with the International School of Neurodevelopment, uh, looking at pregnancy, birth and circumstances, and primitive and postural reflexes. Did a course on Johansson Sound Therapy with Kelp Johansson and Camilla Leslie, um, which is a special program that deals with kids with hearing and listening issues where they can't understand what's being said and stuff. Uh, did some visual training work uh, with uh, behavioral optometrists and stuff to look at the visual system. Uh, did a sensory integration course uh, with uh, two therapists in the States to become a sensory integration specialist. Obviously did the bilateral integration with Sheila years gone by and stuff like that, which I'm kind of renowned for now internationally, which is a big thing. Um, and then obviously did my MA with Open University and then started an M.Phil at Strathclyde, which then transferred into a Ph.D. at the University of Edinburgh with Professor Annette Moutry. So that's the kind of background uh, history, really.
1: Sounds as if you've got a bit of specialism in a lot of areas then. Yeah, period. I
2: mean, I think it's something I've built up over years. I didn't do it all at once because I think that would have been too much, but it's, uh, it's bolting things on, I think, as you go. Mm-hmm. That's the way I've done it, um, and there's still more I want to do, to be quite honest, and to keep getting sharper at what I do. So, yeah, it's it's, it's where I've kind of tried to bed things down for maybe three or four years, then added another bit on, because I think you've got to really become very good at one part before you can then add another bit on, in my opinion. That's how I've looked at it, certainly, and it's it worked very well. So, and it's good to have a full view of a kid, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's good advice in itself, is get good at one thing, spend three or four years practising, refining your knowledge and your, your skill set before moving on to the next thing. That's good, it's yeah. good advice in itself. Yeah, good. Um, so, can you tell us, obviously you do a lot of work in skills trained staff, um, I've been on your BMT staff tutor course as well, which I really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, So can you tell us and the listeners um, a wee bit more detail about the the pedagogical model uh, for the BMT approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, better movers and thinkers. I think it's important to give you a bit of a history as to where it all came from, because I think it makes the pedagogy better fit into teaching and learning. But it was really devised from three people. Uh, John French, who was a QIO for North Lanarkshire, uh, with years of experience within the education sector, as well as a very high-profile coach from a sports perspective, both internationally and nationally. Uh, Thomas Downs, that everybody knows very well, obviously, who has a depth of experience in terms of teaching physical education at secondary school level, Shawlands Academy for years. Uh, Obviously, generated and started Suragatse Volleyball Club, coached that, uh, and then became the Scottish coach, and then the British developmental coach for the Olympic Games. A very, very astute, very clever, very capable coach, I would say it's very hard to find somebody in the UK who's better than him in terms of coaching so he brought a real element of the sport and performance part to, um, to BMT and um, so John kind of brought the educational understanding of policies and practices Tommy brought the kind of sport performance elite level kind of side of things and I brought the kind of science if you want to call it that from a, a kind of child development cognitive development perspective physical development and those three threads came to came together and generated BMT it kind of stemmed from us trying little bits as part of uh, the national volleyball team. Uh, I was I was involved in coaching those for uh, the men's and the women's for a n- number of years. We had little bits that we were trying out and noticing that there were quite a few changes being made and some really nice, interesting progress being made. But then we started to put little pilot projects together in schools in North Lanarkshire through John Frenchie's connections, and the feedback we kept getting anecdotally was really positive. And so we thought, you know, we, we probably we need to look a bit further into this and then it kind of grew arms and legs and we realised that it needed an academic study behind it to kind of support its efficacy and we kind of got in touch with Suzanne Hargreaves at Education Scotland, Nanette Mutri, um, at that point, University of Strathclyde, before transfer to the University of Edinburgh, and, and the whole academic study in the, f- the form of all started to take more shape from a more formal perspective. But over that whole generation the pedagogy's kind of held itself quite stable the whole time um, where we've kind of recognized that physical education is a fantastic subject the way that it was being taught in scotland was fantastic and um, lots of great teaching going on lots of great learning going on bmt wasn't there to replace anything it was much more designed to enhance what was already being done well we were never ones for coming in and saying right stop doing what you've done and do this instead because That's not what the BMT pedagogy was for. The theories behind the BMT pedagogy is, I need you to move and I need you to think, because that's what you capitalize on the very best of what you've got to offer. And I think in some aspects of physical education, if we call it more traditional approaches, by that I don't mean old fashioned, I just mean what was current practice at that time. We were kind of having kids moving, which was great, but in my opinion, not moving enough. We were having kids thinking, but not thinking enough. There was more time teachers talking and less time kids actually learning. And so we wanted to just try and address those kind of main issues. But we needed to form a pedagogy that allowed teachers to make that shift. So we kind of devised BMT around that, where the idea was uh, to try and shift teachers' focus more on getting kids moving more uh, and, and being listening less, if that makes sense, so less teacher. Now, we designed it originally to fit the whole of the curriculum from early level through to fourth level. But at the time, BMT really kind of came to fruition, and that five had just kind of knocked on the door of secondary departments as well. And I think I remember having a meeting with Suzanne, Tommy, John and myself, and we thought this is too much to kind of then try to put into the secondaries because the secondary departments have been bombarded by national fives. And we just think it was a bit unfair to kind of really go wholeheartedly at them. And we recognised that one of the gaps in the market, if you want to call it that, was in primary level and stuff where... Obviously, the PE specialists are much more reduced in primary schools compared to years gone by. And the classroom teachers have got 12 areas to worry about. Mm-hmm. They don't get a great deal of time spent on how to teach PE. And so we recognised actually we could have more of an influence positively there, which hopefully then has a knock on effect long term to the secondary school level. So then we kind of went into the, the primary schools and, and recognised that actually primary classroom teachers are enormously talented teachers, like phenomenal skill level. Very, very good observational skills and um, very, very good pedagogical skills in general. So it was a really good market and a really good uh, environment to capture the B&T pedagogy and really take it to, to, to town. So we kind of recognised that they didn't want to learn all the rules of the different sports, all the different skills of different sports. It was just too much. Uh, and as much as dodgeball's nice for activity, it's not a learning situation that we can kind of really capitalise on. So we need more. So, the BMT pedagogy really took away this idea of teaching skills and tactics and techniques at that primary level in particular, and actually just encouraging physical development and physical education in children, and then adding the cognitive stuff and the emotional stuff on top, and then really kind of bringing all those significant aspects of learning together. So, the BMT pedagogy is very much a case of I'm going to teach you to move, and then I'm going to teach you to move in a whole variety of different ways. And as we're doing that, I'm going to layer on top of that your ability to have to think about why you're moving and what you're moving and where you're moving to. And then I'm going to really try to touch on your executive function skills and enhance and sharpen them up at the same time, and then make sure that you're engaged in that learning process during that whole time. And that's really the BMT pedagogy is move, think, listen, be active, and, best. and, and that's what it all stems from, really.
1: Yeah, I remember being part of the BMT staff tutor course, and you were really big on the at least 20 to 40 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity. I remember he timing one of the, I don't know if it was my, my lesson, but you remember he timing it and it was only like 12 minutes of were active, like from moderate yeah. to vigorous. That's a big focus for the primary teachers as well, isn't it? I, I, I mean,
2: think, it is a big focus. So
1: John, go on, Liz. No, you know, I was saying that when I was at college, when,
0: when I was, um, so I went through college first before doing my PGDE. I was doing sports coaching. I was out at a primary school and I can remember my very first observed coaching session. My lecturer was sitting there and he was sitting there with a timer, but I didn't know he was doing this. So he was timing it every single time I, or the kids were active. It was either every time the kids were active or every time I spoke. And it was something ridiculous, like 80% of me like speaking and like 20% of the kids moving. And I was like, seriously, like, you just you just no, end up getting carried away and just it snowballs and you just end up like to hear the sound of your own voice. And then I was like, well, that was an eye opener for me.
2: But I think this is a common thread with, with most teachers, and it's not, it's not out of badness. It's just out of general enthusiasm. Yeah. Teachers in any capacity in any subject, we're all control freaks. We want it to go the way that we've planned it. We want it yeah. to go the way meant to go because Absolutely. we care for the kids' development and we care for the kids' learning. So best of intentions are always behind that. But as a result, we're blinded to the impact that we can actually have versus what we are having. So even that 80% you're talking about, it's still beneficial for the kids, Lewis, to have that. Of course it is, because kids are still learning, but they're not learning to their very optimal level.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. That we've got to capture. Childhood is not a race. It's not something that's a sprint that we've got to shove them through. We can take our time, and the curriculum for excellence has really allowed for that a bit more, I think. But all the more reason for us to change our teaching approaches so that there's less of us and more of them mm-hmm. um, in terms of time spent. I think that the nature of the physical activity level is is touched on It's very much where there's a reason for that 20 to 40 minutes of moderate vigorous physical activity. It's not just a random number that's been chosen, there's a research and a science behind it that shows that actually that's when you raise the cardiovascular system, the aerobic threshold high enough to really tap into these cognitive reserves that we can access for learning and, and progressing in our lives. So if we know that, we need to then facilitate that in physical education. It's a primary subject that really allows for that that opportunity to kind of take place. If we're doing that twice a week with the primary kids in the two periods that we get in secondary school, then we're optimizing activity levels, which is great. But if that's the case, why don't we just stick 40 treadmills in a gym hall and get them to go out into <laughs> 40 minutes? Because it's not that simple. Once you've woken those cognitive reserves up and accessed them, you've got to then make them use them. And this is where the mm-hmm. thing it's got to be they kind of layered on top and teachers are great at making kids do what they want them to do but not making kids think about how to do it for themselves and how they can mm. and make decisions and so on there has been a shift in scotland for sure over the years i've been involved and teachers are much more on top of that now than they've ever been before but i still think there's still mm. teacher talk and not enough of kids doing i still think that's something we've still got to turn around a little bit more than we yeah. have for all the obvious reasons but Even the nature of how we deliver it has to change. So, kids don't have to stop to hear instructions. Kids can keep moving whilst we're given instructions. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing with the BMT pedagogy is to do what Tommy's always called walk and talk teaching, you know, as opposed to stop everybody, give an instruction, demonstrate it 60 times, and then get the kids going. And I think the downside of that is you spend more time as a teacher trying to manage misbehavior than actually the kids being involved in learning. Whereas, if you keep the lesson going, the best behaviours less likely to happen yeah. often or have as much of an impact on the others
0: hmm. yeah you were big on as well because I can remember you came into my school I don't know if you can remember it was I think it was two years ago in St Andrew's in Kirkcaldy and it was some of the primary clusters were there and a few of the PE staff were there and then um, you're big on like saying one instruction saying an instruction once and then um, if someone didn't get it they've got to go and find out from another people in the class so they're getting that kind of collaboration in, in there as well and I found that quite quite sometimes it's been successful with me, but I guess it's just about just keep doing it so they get used to that. And then they eventually yeah. come round to, he's only going to say this once.
2: I agree. And I, yeah, I think as much as the, um, the teaching approach needs to change, and it definitely takes time for teachers to change habits, there's no question about that. And it, and it does. Yeah. Take, it's not a race being a teacher either. Like childhood's not a race. But if we're teaching in a different way and we come at it from a different approach, we've also got to give the learners a different way of learning and they've got to adapt and have time to to get used to that new way of learning too. The theories behind giving instruction once is two things. One it's to reduce the amount of time the teachers talk as we've mentioned earlier but also it's to make kids actively listen so they're actually concentrating, attending and picking up on the information that they need to progress their learning. So it isn't just about reducing teacher talk it's also about making kids more responsible for their learning and more involved in their learning and more in charge of their learning and um, I mean my habit when I was a teacher I'd say okay at the end of every sentence
0: Yeah, I, know if you <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, if I put all these okay's together it probably make up five minutes of every lesson and <laughs> um, so even changing that for me has been very difficult um, and stuff over the years but I mean I've kind of hopefully I've mastered it by by now to be fair <laughs> and it does take a bit of time for teachers to change habits, but as long as they understand the theory as to why they're changing it and they look for the positive influence it has, then teachers are on board and they're happy to try and engage in that change.
1: So yeah. I suppose for the teachers listening then, Andy, um, you spoke a bit about optimal learning there and how the executive functions help to achieve that. this optimal learning so learning's more consistent and effective. Can you tell, um, can you tell us a bit more then about the, the executive functions and how they... Kind of impact and motivation and engagement within, within the lessons.
2: Yeah I mean executive function skills are the highest level of cognitive ability that human beings have and there's a whole plethora of executive functions that exist but in terms of the, the kind of cognitive neuroscience research that's available at this moment there's, there's what's called the hot six of executive function skills. Uh, there's not a hierarchy to them So when I list them for you, it's not like this comes first, followed by this second. They kind of all come together, really, and they all relate to one another. But in terms of the top six, we've got focus of attention being one of them, inhibition control being two, working memory being three, cognitive flexibility being four, planning being five, and goal-directed behavior being six. Um, And like I say, they're not isolating from each other they're not individual in the sense that you can't just pull one out do something and stick it back in and hold them together they all function at the same time but you might prioritize areas that you're trying to enhance within your lessons so whenever I plan a P lesson I've always got for example maybe two maximum of three significant aspects of learning that I'm going to focus on so for example I might take two from physical competencies and one from personal development and there's my three for that lesson or for a number of lessons I'm going to work on but then underneath that I've got one or two executive function skills that I'm going to enhance during that time as well and that's how it all kind of dovetails together when I plan a PE lesson that, that's mm-hmm. how I it. but the executive function skills they just shut up your performance and really what executive function skills allow for is for human beings to do something called self-regulation which is a fancy word for saying you just behave yourself you manage yourself you be responsible you take Uh, Aware and cognizance and awareness of what's going on around you, and you act as responsibly as you can and as best you can. Um, I spend every single working day trying to inspire kids to be the best that they can be, not to be the best, but to be their best. And in order to achieve that, even as adults, we have to have good executive function skills. So they really serve a very high proportion of tools that allow kids to engage in the learning process to stay engaged in the learning pro- process and therefore benefit from that learning process. Um, there are two kind of key authors that I'd encourage your listeners to, to kind of read on that. Adele Diamond being one of them and a guy called Philip Tomoparowski uh, would be the two big advocates I would, I would encourage people to read They're Very, very high on executive functions in terms of research in the world. I would say they're world leading at this moment
1: in time. Fantastic.
0: Right. Andy, how do you see schools dealing with the challenges facing them at the moment with the whole COVID situation then?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is. We live in very interesting times, guys. There's no two ways about that. Um, I think I've, I've probably got two answers to the question. I think my one, one answer is probably an element of personal answer in the sense that just crack on and do what we've always done. I think this idea of social distancing and PE and stuff like this, uh, I, I don't see the theory behind it. I don't understand the logic behind it. I think it's a uh, misadvice from the government. Um, I actually think kids are desperate to get back together again. But I think um, like there are anxieties going into lockdown and I think there are bigger anxieties coming out of lockdown. And I think what physical education and subjects like drama and art as well for example and music, I think these subjects they allow for kids to come together in a really supportive kind of way and they allow for that reintegration of socialization amongst kids. I think that when it comes to playgrounds and stuff like this, kids are gonna mingle because it's what kids do and they need Mm -hmm. it for their mental health and well-being. So my personal view is for schools to forget about social distancing and physical education and crack on and do what we've always done, which we do very, very well in this country. For a guy who travels around the world, we are, in my opinion, probably leading edge in terms of physical education in many ways. So for us to kind of try to restrict that impact for the kids' health and well-being, I think is a silly approach. Now that's a personal level and stuff. A yeah. professional level I'm fully aware that teachers have got to take cognizance of government guidelines uh, and I understand that there is the safety of teachers to be aware of as much as there is the safety of kids. So I fully appreciate and respect that. But again I think that for teachers it's all about planning and being as prepared as you can possibly be. Um, Johnny Pemans produced some great videos from Glasgow's Pass section about how to actually have grids and squares within a kids can access equipment, use equipment within their square, how they get into their square, how they come out of their square. And he's shown some really great examples of how to achieve that. Um, so if anybody's kind of listening and they're key to kind of find out some more information, I'd strongly encourage them to have a look at Johnny Penman's Twitter page. It's example's on because it's... Um, it's just a great idea and he's spent an awful lot of time in Glasgow City Council putting that together to give people that advice. However, as good as that is, not all schools will have the capability to to produce the the results and the responses that Johnny's produced. So for me, I think that where at all possible, take physical education outside. I think that would be the number one um, recommendation I would make. I think where at all possible... Try to create lessons, especially in primary schools, in my opinion, that are much more about the, the kids managing their own body movements rather than having to use equipment, for example. And this is where a lot of the scaffolding practices from the BMT approach can be really helpful at kind of piecing that stuff together. I think we have to recognise that PE is going to not quite have the same look, from, I think, for a period of time until things are a bit more relaxed. And to be okay about not delivering gymnastics or football or badminton or whatever but to still deliver physical education where you look more at the physical skills of balance coordination rhythm and timing fluency and thinking on top of that and i think that's the way that you're able to capture it so for example um having kids jog four skip four and that's the general pattern for example and they, a they cue from the team perform five star jumps or whatever physical task that they want the kids to achieve um, and then just keep layering on top of that and try to create a sequence of movements that almost becomes like a dance routine if you like. But it's all based around balance, posture, gross motor control and more importantly fine muscle control as well. Um, I think there are aspects within the videos that are available on Education Scotland's National Improvement Hub where you could take different scaffolding practices Movement patterns at the base of those and add the scaffolding practices on top to make kids just better coordinated. And it allows for the social spatial you know, social distancing to be facilitated even in the gym hall. And also, some of that can be used within the classroom itself as well. So, I think there are ways in which that schools can address some of the key areas that the government are advising, but still give the children a very rich physical education experience at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think you made some good points there. And I think another challenge, I guess, that uh, is obviously try and get them outside as much as possible because I totally agree with what you're saying with that um, because there's no safer place mm-hmm. than outside, according to the government as well. Um, but in my setting, I think the, the main gyms and stuff like that are going to be used for socially distanced classes. Well, that's where it was initially, but I don't know if that's changed now. But even doing activities in the classroom such as as yoga or like things where they've got to do different kind of things like you mentioned, balance with your body and just being creative because yoga is a very, very beneficial um, exercise or learning for the, for, for the kids.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all of that. I think there are some schools that are not going to have the capacity to use gym holes and stuff, as you kind of mm-hmm. suggest. And as much as we want two hours of physical education, I think what we've got to look at is, I think if you looked at Monday to Friday as the school week, if the kids were achieving, say, 20, 25 minutes in class each day doing something like yoga, for example, or Pilates or scaffolding practices that can be done on the spot or whatever, yeah. um, I definitely think that you know over that, that five days, getting close to at least achieving something, you're not quite going to achieve that moderate to vigorous physical activity that we're hoping for. But you can still get the kids to use what they currently have to their very best ability. And I think that's mm-hmm. So we don't cause regression, we cause progression, albeit in a slightly different way. Um, I think for me, this is where the BMT's been, it's really almost evolved and grown so much over all the years I've been involved with it, which I've loved, the, the fact that it's progressed the way that it has. I mean, just incredible, loved it. So there's much more classroom teachers using the BMT pedagogy in class. So not just as an approach to physical education, but as an approach to learning and teaching across the whole curriculum. Where that's been done well, the impact on the kids learning is unbelievable. I mean, exceptional. I think a big shout out needs to go to a woman called Margaret McSporrin, who's a classroom teacher up at Dallantover Primary School in Campbelltown Argyll and Butte, and worked an awful lot with Margaret over a lot of years now. Uh, And the way that she has her EMT used in classroom, as well as her physical education lessons, I doubt there's a teacher in Scotland that's not doing it as well as her, quite frankly, across the board. The impact on her primary ones going into primary two is massive. The writing's much better. The reading's much better. Their attention levels are high. Their listening skills are good. Their memory's fantastic. Their sequencing skills are on play. They're just so on top of their game. They are streets ahead when it comes to that transition to primary two, because they've had a whole year of BMT across the whole school. And it's not like Margaret's doing that and not doing other things at the same time. Of course, she's doing our general teaching and and our general kind of theories and her own philosophy and stuff, as well as the school's ethos and stuff too. She's just delivering it through that BMT approach. Um, So I think that there's an awful lot of stuff that in schools such as yourselves, where maybe the facilities of UPE are being used for something else, you can still bring some of that stuff into the classroom. And I think if you do a bit of it every day, I think you'll gain an awful lot as a result for the kids.
1: Yeah, and I think it yeah, just think, gives an awkward on you go, Clark. I think BMT's probably got a, a big part to play moving forward as well from the you know, the course I was on with yourself, Andy. It definitely can be done socially distanced. Um, so I think it's probably a really important it could could be a really important part of teaching and learning within P when we go back because of the nature yeah. of it. And I definitely think stuff. it's
2: yeah. it's a good tool for that, I think. I mean I think BMT yeah. does lend itself especially so at this moment in time, given all the restrictions that we might have to deal with. Mm. A and t pedagogy and stuff and the scaffolding practices that, that are there, I think they lend themselves as a solution to part of the problem for sure.
0: Yeah, it allows you to um, work on a lot of different salves as well, you know, like maybe the ones that you would maybe kind of stay clear of or the kind of less <laughs> common ones, do you know what I mean? Like your <laughs> multi-processing and things like that, it gives you an opportunity to really hone those skills and really develop them, I think. That, it does, and I think, it's, and it's I an think opportunity. by doing
2: that, it's definitely an opportunity, Lewis. I would agree. I think what that does as well is, when then the restrictions begin to ease up, I actually think it sharpens P even more again. I think it gives us a real chance to look at some things that they might not otherwise look at. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a really good observation to make. But imagine if we sharpened that up and then the restrictions are eased. How good would physical education then look? <laughs> End of that could be something just wow, just
1: yeah,
2: you know, so exciting times for sure.
1: So Andy, see you spoke about the, the teacher in Argyll and Butte, um, you yeah. said that there was, prog- there was a lot of progress made within the writing and stuff. So I, remember, I remember kind of the assessing BMT approach, it was more about professional judgment and observation. Just for anyone listening, is that kind of two ways that you would be assessing movement within lessons for the BMT approach?
2: I think the way that you want to assess movement from a T approach can can take many different forms, depending on what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, And certainly, I've been involved with lots of other teachers who have decided to do either a master's degree or just action research for their own professional development, and they've wanted to look at B And so they've come to me for advice of how do you you make the study happen? What does it look like? What do you evaluate? And so on. I think for me, it's very much around aspects such as the physical competencies, So how good is their balance, how good is their gross motor control, how good is their fine muscle control, those three particular areas. You could argue partial control on there as well, but for me, I think balance, gross motor, and fine motor are the three key areas. I think that we look at things like memory capacity, and on top of that, sequencing skills that give you that idea of cognitive ability, as well as inhibition skills, and those are probably the big five areas. So if I list them again for your listeners, balance, gross motor control, fine motor control, memory and inhibition skills. I think those five areas are a really nice way to evaluate a kid's tools for learning that covers across school and outside of school into the wider community, which is an important link that must be made in my opinion. You can look at performance in terms of what's produced in a variety of ways by the kids, and what their learning behaviours are like during lessons. You sit and take a five minute, ten minute observation of two or three kids and how much time have they spent on task versus off task? You can evaluate yourself in terms of record your lesson, how much time is spent you talking then doing. Mm-hmm. Evaluate things like what spatial awareness are the kids more likely to produce now? What's the observational part? If you record the lesson and watch it back and you look at you know Clark and Lewis and Andy as your three kids and how have they managed the lesson, have they progressed forward? That's another way that you can observe the impact that that's having. Um, you can do physical testing. You can test the kids on a one-leg stand balance test and say how many seconds can you keep it for, and then later on in the term try it again and see if it's getting better. I think there are very simple ways to do it as very very complex ways to do it. It just really mm-hmm. what you're trying to achieve and why you're doing it.
1: I suppose you said earlier about the, the anecdotal evidence. It was you could also evaluate the kids. Uh, sort of get the pupils to self-evaluate as well and how yeah, they I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's one part in the PhD study that, that was done and stuff. It didn't just take the, the quantitative data, but there was a qualitative part of how the kids experienced BMT as well as the teachers themselves. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was really interesting. It was kind of uh, good to see how much they, they really enjoyed the change in delivering the, in terms of physical education. And the feedback from the kids was amazing, actually. So, yeah, there is the anecdotal part. But even the anecdotal part can be collected formally if it's if it needs to be done that way, you know.
0: Yep. Right, Andy. Lastly, then we are interested to know, in your opinion, what makes a high quality teacher. What <laughs> <It> makes <laughs> a high quality
2: teacher? Yeah, put Play me on, you on the, the
0: spot, spot.
2: Uh, I, think <laughs> I think if we say teacher in general, because to be honest with you, I don't delineate between a PE teacher and a classroom teacher. I think a teacher is an all-encompassing thing. I don't see PE teachers being any different than an art teacher, frankly. I just think the environment's different, but not the same. So what makes a good high-quality teacher? First and foremost, one that's fully prepared, um, that tries to cover plan A to Z and has different ideas along the way, because no one lesson's going to go in a straight line. I think a high-quality teacher has great eyes and superb ears to really pay attention to the learners to actually respond to what their needs are, not to what you've planned their needs to be. Um, I think that one who can think on the spot, who can respond to the kids in front of them, uh, I think is really important. Um, I think a high quality teacher is a great role model. So how they conduct themselves amongst their peers, as well as in front of the kids, shows all the decency of a human being. Um, Respect, um, positivity, motivation, engagement, um, ability to, to accept that you'll make mistakes along the way and that that's okay. Um, I think that's what a high quality teacher looks like. I think a quality teacher is one who is willing to observe other teachers and learn from other teachers, both younger, inexperienced, and more experienced than themselves. I think we all need to share great practice and there's an awful lot of that out there. And if you're a good teacher, you soak it up by watching and talking and listening to those around you. And finally, teachers who still engage in reading and research—that is, for me, a really key part of a high-quality teacher, one who's willing to get the most up-to-date information that enhances the ability to teach to the best of their ability, allowing the learners to learn to the best of theirs.
0: That was that was good for being put on the spot. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I not, put on the spot quite a lot. That's brilliant. I think that um, that rounds up the the main interview questions really nicely. And I think a lot of people can take a lot of good information from that. So moving on to the final part today, Andy, it's going to be the quick fire round of three. So it's just three nice quick questions for you to finish off the podcast. All right. Sure. So number one, if you could have a giant billboard, you say you travel all over the world. So it could be anywhere in the world or in your hometown. What would it say on it?
2: Uh, it would probably say be more physically active to save people and save lives.
0: Brilliant. Number two, what book or books have had the greatest influence on your life? Uh,
2: I would say that um, there's a lot of books have had uh, an influence on me. People have had more of an influence than books, I'd like to stress. Um, so I would say that in terms of books, um, How the Body Shapes the Mind by Sean Gallagher from 2005. The Out of Sink Child from Carol Stock Cranowitz. I'd say Cognitive Development, The Learning Brain by Usha Goswami. Uh, and I would say that actual, the manual from the bilateral integration course that Sheila Adobe wrote, those would be probably the, the biggest influence on my current practice and my current teaching. On top of that, finally, a book by a guy called John Holt from 1963 called How Children Fail, uh, which I think is a very, very good read as well.
0: Brilliant. Number three then, final one. What advice would you give to a student teacher about to enter the working world or what advice should they ignore?
2: Um, I don't think they should ignore any advice. I think they should fill out advice, first and foremost. Um, and in terms of what should they do, first of all, any time that you're not teaching, don't sit down and do paperwork. Go and sit and observe other teachers teaching. I think for a student teacher, that is gold dust. That's worth much more than any book or anything that they'll ever read. Second thing, don't be afraid to ask experienced teachers questions uh, in terms of why did they do it that way, why did they not do it a different way? What was the thinking behind it all? How did they prepare and plan? I think asking questions and observing lessons is your best way as a student teacher or a new teacher to really get embedded into the profession and to, to really get the most out of what you're capable of. And lastly, listen to the kids. Pay attention to what the kids are doing and pay attention to what they're saying about your teaching and about your lessons. Because they're the best advocates of whether you're good at your job or not. So those would be the three bits of advice I would offer student teachers.
0: Brilliant. I think that um, rounds up the podcast very nicely. A lot of great information in there. And I just want to say thanks very much for coming on to do this with us today. We really appreciate your time.
2: Well listen, um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure, I, no I, uh, I think these podcasts are great guys, I think you're doing something really special for, for teachers around the world, let alone in Scotland alone, but I think they're very useful things, so hopefully you'll continue to do more of the two of you, because they're, they're really helpful.
1: Another great podcast of a wee bit of editing, and we hope this helps the next generation of teachers and current teachers across the country and beyond who listen to the podcast at the end of the day this podcast is by teachers for teachers and we really appreciate your time Andy, for coming on today so lewis what was your key takeaway message from the podcast
0: like i had about 20 key takeaway messages there but for the sake of the time i'm only going to pick one of my favorite but there was just so many i could take from that episode
1: i really liked
0: the bit of advice or what Andy said about he, he wants to, he tries to get the young people to be their best and not their best I think that's so important rather than trying to make them the best at everything just trying to get the best from them and what they are what they are capable of I think that was uh, that rung true with me also I like the advice or the what in his opinion what of what made a high quality feature just gave so many different just rung them off the top of his head and it was just they were great Great pieces of information that I can take forward. Um, talking about preparation, using your eyes effectively, using your ears effectively, being able to observe what's going on in front of you and responding to it rather than trying to stick with your lesson plan rigidly. Being a good thinker, just loads of really, really good nuggets of information in there of what makes a a great teacher. So, uh, there was just loads of loads of brilliant information in there, and I'll definitely definitely be listening to that one back because. Um, there's there's things in there that I want to listen to again. Things that I might have forgot because I know there was a lot more information
1: on in, in the podcast. So, what about yourself? Um, I would be saying Andy spoke about walking and talking. So when you're stopping your lessons to give information on an approach to develop performance, for example, and I got a condition you're putting in, there's no need for the, the whole class to stop so they can still be walking or moving. Whilst you're given information. Therefore, that will increase the physical activity within the lesson, because there's less stopping and starting. There's hopefully more fluidity to the lesson as well, which will hopefully increase optimal learning for each each individual in the class. That, that might mean that you might need to talk to one or two people who maybe haven't got the information and they don't really know what they're doing. So you can do that whilst the rest are working. So I think that's a good bit of advice for any student teacher or any teacher listening to the podcast, because I've definitely taken that on board, and I'll be thinking about that. No, what else was interesting, see what
0: he said, it's you're, you're trying to incorporate the BMT approach into your own teaching or whatever, is, and you may only use it once or twice, and then you may not see instant results. So he says it takes time for the pupils to change their learning, and not just your teaching. Like it, changed, it takes time for us to change our teaching habits or whatever, but it also takes time for them to change how they learn so it's about just being persistent with it like giving the information out once things like that those little um, elements of the the BMT approach I think that's an important message as well be persistent with it be patient it's not a race and um, it will come and that was a great example of that teacher I think it was in Campbelltown in primary school how she's managed to completely recreate her, her, her own teaching and he says it's just been amazing, the results that she's got from it. So I think that was a, a good bit of information as well.
1: Yeah, I think you make a great point there. I mean, for anything to be successful, it has to be consistent, doesn't it? It has to be part of the culture. You know, if you want a culture change within your class, if you're not one who says instruction once and you walk out in your class in August and start giving it once and they don't listen, is it going to work? You know, any normal person would tell you no. So... It takes time. It takes a certain amount of days, you know, 66 days for a habit. So if you use that measurement, then you've got a long way to go. Um, So another 65 days that would be. So no, um, great podcast. Really enjoyed listening to it. And I'm sure we'll keep in touch with Andy moving forward. Um, So yeah, really enjoyed
0: that one there, Clark. As always, if you see it on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, we would appreciate if you could give us a share or a retweet. Again, as this helps us get the podcast out there so others can get this excellent information. Until the next time, we really do hope you have a great week and take care of yourselves.